1 Corinthians chapter 16. Now today we're going to finish chapter 16, and next week we're going to get into our long-awaited study of the book of 2 Corinthians. <clears throat> I think that doing the 1 Corinthians the way we did, and then taking a break from what we were doing overall and coming back and look at 2 Corinthians is really going to be a great value to us, because we've learned so much from the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, basically what we have learned, if we're paying attention, is how not to build a church uh, and how not to try to do ministry. I think all of Paul's books do one great thing, and I, it's, I really enjoy uh, reading beyond just what you may have there, you know, on the paper. I really enjoy going beyond that and, and getting some of the uh, great insights that you get about probably uh, Paul, who was without a doubt the greatest Christian that ever lived. And not only just about his life, but how he thought about the ministry, uh, how he thought about uh, the people that he dealt with. And I think that the real key to any ministry is not just watching what a guy does, uh, but understanding why a person does what they do. I think that's goes back to what I talked about last week, that one of the real major problems with young men and young ladies is the fact that they never really glean anything from anybody who knows anything. And it's a tragedy because uh, I know in my own life, you know, as I was a young man and, and God had put uh, probably two or three of the of key individuals in my life that really shaped my thinking and shaped everything that I did. And I, I see that, and I, and I look at Paul, and I see how he has the same effect on the, the people that are around him. And I think it's absolutely valuable, invaluable, not just to see what a guy does, but understand the why behind it and understanding the biblical principles that go along with it. You know, I say this often, and it's true. If you're saved here this morning, and I suspect probably most of you, if not all of you are, but if you're saved here this morning, there's, there's no question about the fact that uh, God saved you for really one purpose, and that purpose is that you could fulfill for Him what He started. In other words, God saved you to minister to, with, for Him. There's, any, there's no way around it. You can try to sidestep it all you want. You can make all the excuses that you want. You can find all of the reasons on the planet not to, but at the end of the day, uh, honestly and openly from a Bible standpoint, that's really the reason God saved you. And not fulfilling that will obviously lead to a lot of problems in your life. I think that the Bible talks about, it's like, you know, when you get saved, it's like God put a 5,000-pound Bengal tiger inside of you who really wants to get out. And if you ever saw, uh, I think, and I know we have them, and I'm not against zoos or anything, <clears throat> Lord knows I pastor one, so I mean, I understand how it all works. <laughs> but the thing that I hate about going to a zoo from one standpoint is you see these animals that God created to roam. Oh, she's going to start crying now when I'm talking about, are you not going to cry? <laughs> you see these animals that God created to roam the wild, you know, like the, the lions, you know, and, and, and tigers and all of those uh, majestic animals. And they put them in a cage you know, that you and I can go see them. And I understand the whole thing. And I'm not saying they don't take good care of them. 
<clears throat> but they were not created to be in captivity. And you see them when they're in their cages, and all they do is just pace up and down. You're just pacing up and down. And, you know, and they get very threatened by anything or anybody, you know, that comes around them. And all they do is just pace up and down because that's not how they were designed to be. They were designed to bust out of that cage and to roam the world. And like we already hear it all the time, the lion is the king of beasts. Think of that in the same way today you got saved. The Holy Spirit of God, God put the Holy Spirit of God in you so you could minister. And when you don't minister, when you don't do with what God's Spirit that He gave you, the Holy Spirit of God is like that lion. It just roams up inside you, unsettled. It just roams back and forth, paces back and forth, because it wants to bust out. It wants to go after and do everything that, you know, that God uh, put Him in you to do. And just like it's a terrible waste of God's created uh, animals to be in a cage and when God designed them to be out and free and, and doing what they do and what God designed them to do. It's a tragedy that God's people have the Holy Spirit of God just pacing up inside them. It's no wonder it leads to the, the problems that we have in life. Bible talks about grieving the Holy Spirit of God. And a good way of understanding the grieving is to realize that God saved you for a purpose when you don't fulfill that purpose, just like that caged lion wanting to get out and attack the world. Holy Spirit of God wants to break out of you and attack the world. But it, it, it does not happen in most cases. We see in this great book not only what's wrong with this church, and there's plenty, but also the great insight to what Paul is doing and, and who's helping him uh, with the mission that he's got from God. You know, the anatomy of a Bible-believing church is, is not very complicated. Understanding the anatomy and how a church works is, is very basic and, and, and very, it's very clear in the Bible. You know, God puts in a man's heart to start a work. God takes a man and puts into his heart that, to do a work for him and start a church. That man obviously begins to, through faith, goes through the doors that God opens for him biblically. And uh, it's, you know, and in time, you know, in time, God brings people to him that, uh, that uh, he gives him that will uh, line up with him and, and get his heart for ministry, get his passion for, for people and the things that, and that's how, God, that's how God does it. We've seen that with Paul. We saw in our last lesson, and as we've been talking about all the way through this book, how that there are three people groups that really made Paul's ministry work. The first one was young men. We talked about young ladies too, Paul and Timothy, and how Paul took Timothy, just like I take so many of you young men and young ladies, and, and fine-tune you, work through the issues, and help you get everything. Because we saw that there's a great value uh, with young men and young ladies. We also saw that there's some liabilities. They may, have the, they may have the energy, but they don't always have the experience. Then we saw, uh, we talked about Apollos last week. And here's a guy who has been around at least probably in his 50s, maybe even his 60s. But he went all the way through from John the Baptist up through Christ's crucifixion, up to Paul beginning the starting the church. And here he is, you know, now uh, part of Paul's work and invaluable with him in trying to do everything that Paul's trying to do. Then we saw a couple, Quill and Priscilla, how, that, uh, how important and vital they were. And, and I believe this with all of my heart. I, I, I've been in this business for a little while now, and I you know, you know you, after, after a while, you begin to see some things and understand some things. And, you know, in the last probably 10 or 
15 years of my life, my whole idea of a church has kind of changed a little bit. And, you know, and it's, it's took a lot of pressure off of me because I think a lot of pastors put themselves under a lot of pressure because they fall into the idea that, that uh, you know, if they have a successful church, you've got to have a big church. And that's the peer pressure. You know, we talk about your, your teenage kids going to, going to school and feeling peer pressure to do that all the other kids do. Well, there's a tendency to that in everything we do. And it's certainly within the ministry. You'll find that, uh, that pastors fall into that same kind of, of trap, that the peer pressure from other pastors to, to have a big church and to, and to get to the point where you're absolutely, uh, you know, uh, humongous. And that's really what success is. And that drives so many churches. It drives so many pastors. It drives so many sermons, even today, across this city and across the country. And I, 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 I've learned over the last probably 10 or 15 years that that that's really not the process that, that any pastor ought to be interested in. I believe that God established a church and brings people to a church for a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church anyhow. I, I believe that he brings people to churches for, for one basic reason, after they get saved. And that is to give you the opportunity to go to the next level or not. And some people do it, some people don't. But at the judgment seat of Christ, I think it's very clear that we'll all look back and we'll see the opportunities that God gave us put right in front of us to get to the next level, to get what God had for us. God creates the circumstances. We saw it last week how that, you know, Aquila and Priscilla, they're living in Rome and Claudius kicks them out of Rome and they're, they're finally hooked up with Paul. They're both tent repair guys and bang, next thing you know, that's how God does it. And God will bring you to this church. I can't speak for any other church. I really can't. But I think that the, the underlying reason why uh, you're here this morning uh, is, 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 is two things. One, if you've already decided that you're going to make ministry your life, then you're here to learn. And if you're not, then you're here to decide if you want to go to the next level or not. And I think that that's just as simple as that. And I think that's just the way that it works. You know, so God puts people together. He brings people together through a common bond, and that common bond is the call of doing the Lord's work. And I, I can't emphasize enough the, the example uh, that we talked about last week about the, to the Timothys in this church, the young men and the young ladies who are the driving force to, to get everything uh, done that needs to be done, and what you bring into the work here. And then and the apologists of our church, the men and the women have been around for a while. They understand how it all works. They understand a lot of things that the younger people don't. And then, of course, the, the Aquilas and the Priscillas of our church, the couples that God gives us who actually, you know, are part of, the, of, of it all working together. Those three groups all have an equal value. And when you put them together in the common bond of ministry, that's when things begin to work. And then we saw the key that brings it all together. Uh, in the house of Stephanus. And I talked to you about how this was my favorite aspect of the Bible. It says in verse 15, last week it says, the house of Stephanus who have addicted themselves to the ministry. We talked about uh, addiction. Uh, it's a great verse. For now you have a verse to throw right in the face of the milk toast baby Christians that think that uh, giving your all to the Lord Jesus Christ is, is unreasonable. I think we ought to get bumper stickers that doesn't say, don't be a fanatic. When it, when it comes to Christ, don't be a fanatic. Be an addict. That's a great bumper sticker. God doesn't want you to be a fanatic. He wants you to be an addict. 
He wants you to so addicted to the ministry that you, you can't go 15 minutes without talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. So today we're going to close this book out with what we didn't get to last week, and this will be the five commands or the five charges that he gives to this church. And again, I think that the last chapter is a great introduction to 1 Corinthians, uh, the handbook of ministry. For when we start this great book next week, we already know some things about what we shouldn't be and what we shouldn't do because we've learned a lot of things from the book of 1 Corinthians. We've learned, first of all, that uh, churches are full of baby Christians. Every church has two nurseries. The one in the back where all the kids are, that's the physical one. And the one here where all the people are, that's where the spiritual babies are. And there's really nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that because a good, healthy church needs to have baby Christians that are coming in and, and growing, that, getting saved, and that, that's what it's supposed to be. The problem becomes is when you stay that way uh, and you never really grow up spiritually. And getting to that place in your life, we also learned this, you get by, stay a spiritual baby by either never beginning to grow spiritually or, you know, quitting your spiritual growth someplace along the line. Uh, I have my, in my mind a couple of you uh, folks, and I wouldn't embarrass you this morning, but uh, uh, my wife and I were talking about it this week, how that in the last year, just in the last year, you've went from a, a baby Christian who basically knew nothing uh, to a point where you're, you're, you're doing things that many Christians have been saved five, ten years don't do. And I wouldn't throw in any names because my purpose is today is if you're not doing anything, not to make you feel any worse than you should already feel. But at the same time, just put it in the generalities. Some of you are coming up on your two-year anniversary in this church from when you got saved. And you know what? You're doing more than most Christians and in the leadership role of many Christians in my life in the last 40-some years that I've seen have been in churches for 10 years. You know why? Because, as I said before, you only get out of something what you put into it. And when your attitude is ministry, when your attitude is addicting yourself to the ministry, and boy, it can get addicting. That's exactly what it takes, and that's exactly uh, what uh, we want to keep fostering here in, in time. And then we saw a, true, a biblical church, and we've already talked about this, is built around three people groups, and they are key, the Timothys of a church, the Apollos of the church, and Aquila and Priscilla's. If I look out here today and I see you and I know you by Bill, George, Ralph, Tom, all the names that you are, in my mind I look at you today and I put you in three categories. The Timothys of my life, the Apollos of my life, and the Aquilas and the Priscillas of my life. Men and women who have made the choice when God put it in my heart to start a church, to band with me, get my heart, get my vision, get my passion, get my addiction, and together we minister together. And... Uh, you know, the success of any church will be defined by the attitude of what we do with ministry. We're going to talk about that next week. And then the last thing, and we want to look at this today in summary, is we want to look at the five commandments, the five charges. And this will be our lesson today that Paul gave uh, this church. And I close this study uh, the same way that Paul closed this letter, by leaving the church with five things that they need to do and keep before them. Now, let's begin reading here in uh, chapter 16, verse 9, and uh, we'll come down through it and pick it up. He says this, For a great door and effectual is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. Now, if Timothy come, see that he may be with you without fear, for he worketh the work of the Lord as I also do. 
Let no man therefore despise him, but conduct him forth in peace, that he may come unto me, for I look for him with the brethren. It's touching our brother Apollos. I greatly desired him to come unto you with the brethren, but he, his will was not at all to come at this time, but he will come when he shall have convenient time. Now here comes our two verses today. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. Let all things be done with charity. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus today. And we love you, Father, and we come to you today asking you to, uh, Lord, to bless us and to give us uh, all the things that we need. Uh, we love you so much and thank you for all the opportunities. And I thank you for the Timothys of this church. I look back at my own life and I recognized how that one time in my life that, that I was a Timothy. And you put the men in my world who, as far as I was concerned, Father, that they, they were the Apostle Pauls of my life. And I recognized the fact that I was stupid, I was dumb, and I was prone to making a lot of bad decisions and choices. And Lord only knows where my life would have been if, if it wouldn't have put the men in my life to, uh, to give me the advice and the, and the structure and all of the things that I needed. And Lord, uh, help me to be that to these, to these young Timothys, male and female. And then, Lord, we, we do thank you today for, uh, for the, uh, the Apollos and for the Aquila and the Priscilla. We thank you for all that you've given us. We just pray that your blessing today as we continue to grow and, and all that we endeavor to do for you, with all the opportunities that you've given us. And Lord, we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, the first thing he says here is in verse 13. And he says that we are to watch. And he says, watch ye. The Christian is told to watch out for many things in the Bible. Doesn't seem like it'd be a very great study, but one of the greatest studies that you'll ever take is to study the things that you and I are to watch out for. And I mean, it could go on forever and ever and ever. Uh, you know, the idea of the example of standing and watching. We saw it, if you remember, all the way back in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Remember that? Back in Ezra and Nehemiah, how that, when they built the wall around the city, and we talked about the city being a picture of the church, and uh, this church is made up of individuals, and the Bible says that our bodies are a temple, a house, a building of God, not made with hands. And the wall around that city was what the church believes. It protected them, kept the enemy out. It protected them, uh, a picture of what we believe in the Bible doctrine we hold to. And then we talked about how that the elders, the men, in the, the men of, that, of the nation of Israel, uh, they stood watch on the wall. David talks about a high tower, a uh, tower of David. And they stood on this wall and they watched. And the wall was good, but the wall wasn't enough. Because people can always breach a wall. And people can, you know, you just all get inside and fat and happy and sassy and having a good time. And on the other side of the wall, somebody's drilling a hole in it. And while you go to sleep at night, they're going to come through. So the wall's not enough. They had to have people that were standing on the wall that were watching. And they had people at the gates, the, the gates that you went into the city. They were watching. And that's really a picture of what our job is, uh, the job of a church. And uh, we are to watch. This is our church. This is, it, if you feel that way about it, this is the church that God gave us. And we already know that the devil wants to stop it, and God wants it to go forth. And we all know that our job is to protect what God has given us here. I wouldn't give you two hoots and a win for somebody who comes to a church but cares nothing about protecting it. You're no good to me. 
I already know where the attacks are going to come from. I can almost predict when they're going to happen. And the bottom line is for you just to stand by blase and say, yes, my church, go ahead and knock the front door down and it's fine. That's not what we're looking for. So the first thing we find is that we are, uh, that we, we, we take our watch on the wall. Uh, the second thing, Matthew chapter 26. I'm not going to give you all of these today, but there's enough of them. Matthew 26, 4. The Christian is told to watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. That's a good one. Matthew chapter 24, verse 42. A Christian is, is to watch for his Lord's return. He says, watch therefore, for you know not when, uh, what hour your Lord doth come. So a Christian is to keep an eye on his church to keep the devil out, but he's also to keep an eye on himself to keep the world out and the temptations out and all of those things that go along with that. Now, here's another one, Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 31. Here's a good one. Every church, every church ought to watch its pastor. You ought to watch the pastor over there and make sure Acts 20, 29, uh, chapter 20, verse 29, 31, you make sure that he's preaching the truth and not a wolf in sheep's clothing that's going to rob you with the judgment seat of Christ or get you involved in some kind of heretical teaching. Here's another good one, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. A pastor is supposed to watch his congregation. The Bible says in uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, Obey them that have rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they must give an account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. You see, uh, it's a two-way street. You're supposed to watch me. I'm supposed to watch you. And the bottom line is that when you go to a church and you understand what a church is and what it does for you, the Bible says the leaders of the church, they watch for your souls. And then it says, if that wasn't a big enough job, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5 says the pastor is to watch in all things. So that means you have cable TV, satellite TV, so you can get all the channels, I guess. I'm not sure how that works. If you watch all things, you won't have time for that stuff, I guarantee you. <clears throat> I have an old sermon that I preached for many, many years, and I call it the five watchwords in the Bible, five being the number of death, that if you want to get killed spiritually, these, you know, or not want to get killed spiritually, watch these five things. And I, in the sermon, I kind of lay it out and build it around five things that a Christian should watch uh, in his life. And the first thing he should watch in his life is his words, his words, what he says. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13 says that we are to have sound words. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3 says that our words are to be wholesome words. And a Christian needs to watch his words. And he needs to watch uh, what he says, who he says it to. He needs to watch, uh, you know, what he's talking about. And we, we've talked about it before many, many times. <clears throat> a Christian ought to watch his actions. Romans chapter 14, verse uh, 7 says that no man liveth to himself and no man dieth to himself. Somebody's always watching your life. <clears throat> so you've got to watch your actions. The next thing he says is uh, that I, I preach in it is a Christian ought to watch his thoughts. And that'll be over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, where it says, Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. Uh, the next thing that you need to watch, or the fourth thing, would be your companions, who you hang out with. Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, we got into it in a great, great length here uh, when we come through that chapter, is evil communications corrupt good manners. And then the fifth thing is that a Christian had to watch is his heart. 
Bible says in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, that keep thy heart with all diligence. Why? For out of it are the issues of life. Bible says that thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your, and all your soul, and all your mind, over there in Matthew chapter 22. Psalm 119, verse 11 says, Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Now, you, you take a, give me a, somebody that, <laughs> that guards all five things of those in their life, and I'll tell you somebody who's got something going, you see. But the first thing he says is you and I are to watch. We're to watch. Then the next thing he says there in verse 13 is, is that we are to stand fast in the faith. Now, a church should take a stand on some things. Problem is that most churches take stands. They just take them on the wrong things. And uh, a good Bible-believing church ought to take a doctrinal stand on things and be unmovable on it. One of the first things and the foremost thing for me is the Bible. And uh, a church ought to stand on the Bible being the Word of God. It's just that simple. We have a lot of churches today that believe that they, the Bible is not the Word of God, that there's other truth out there besides the Bible. And, of course, we, we don't take that stand. We believe the Bible is the Word of God as God gave it to us. We believe it's infallible. We believe it's perfect. We believe it's inspired. And we believe it's everything that God claimed it to be. I've told you all the time. So everybody said, well, we believe the Bible when, when God in the original was all inspired, when it was inspired. Well, let me ask you a question. What good is the fact that God inspired something one time if you can't get it today? I mean, the bottom line is, what good is inspiration without preservation? Somebody said, oh, I'm excited. God wrote the Bible. Yeah, but where do you find it today? Okay. Can you get it today? Our church takes a stand at the Bible you got in your lap, and the King James 16 ever authorized version is the absolute infallible Word of God. I mean, that's just where it's at, the book. We believe the virgin birth. A lot of churches don't believe that anymore. We believe in eternal security. A lot of churches don't believe that anymore. We believe in a literal hell and a literal judgment. Most people don't believe that anymore. We believe in the premillennial return of the Lord Jesus Christ. People don't believe that anymore. We believe in the holiness of the believer. What does that mean? Once you get saved, you ought to let the world go and you ought to live for God and do what's right. See? A church is to take a stand for things, but then a church takes a stand against some things. You see? You stand against false religions, false teachings. You stand against charismatic movement. You stand against liberalism. You stand against things that uh, teach heresy to them to the Bible. Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even the church. Now, that's a great verse. If you don't have that verse marked in your Bible, you ought to mark that verse in your Bible. That verse tells you right there that you're to come to the point where you grow up and you know what the Bible means. You know what it says. I, you know, the thing that drives me crazy is, is God's people who've been saved for a number of years, and they know more about the Bible now than when they got saved. They couldn't, they couldn't defend themselves if somebody attacked them or their Bible or what they believe if their life depended on it. You know why? Because you're carried about by every wind of doctrine. I know people that their whole what they believe about the Bible changes by what they get on the Internet and hear somebody lay out and somebody do this or somebody do that. Their whole life is built on finding out what somebody on the Internet says and then coming around saying, look what I found. Look at this new thing I got. Bottom line is, if you know the Bible, the Bible's the Bible. It's as simple as that. But that's where we're at today, you see. He says over there in, chapter, uh, in, uh, uh, in Galatians chapter uh, 5, verse 1, he says that you and I are to stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. 
and be you not entangled again. You're to stand fast in your liberty. In Ephesians chapter 6, he says the Christian is told to take a stand against the wiles of the devil. Verse 13 of that chapter says, Take the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand an evil day and have done all to stand. And then he says in verse 14, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, breastplate of righteousness, feet shod with the preparation of gospel of peace, shield of faith, helmet of salvation. I'm going to tell you something, folks. If you don't stand for something, you're going to fall for everything. And that's just the way it works. Then the next thing, or the third thing he says there, and this is kind of a, uh, an interesting one, he says, quit you like men. Now, the word quit there doesn't mean to stop doing something. It's an old English word that means to do your part. To do your part like a man. Behave yourself like a man. The definitive passage on it would be 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 9, I believe, where it pretty much explains how the word is used if you compare Scripture with Scripture. But it basically means to do your part, to do your part like a man, behave yourself like a man, bear yourself in the manner of a man. Uh, in today's words, it'd be like, act like a man. In the companion verse of that would be found uh, in a great verse in 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 12, where, uh, where Joab uh, makes a statement that kind of explains the verse, even though it doesn't use the exact same words. When you put it all together, you can get the gist of it. I think Joab is, is, is a great study in the Bible. Joab was uh, one of the generals uh, back in the Old Testament, and he planned battles. I think guys like that are invaluable to study in the Word of God uh, when you realize that uh, you need to have a battle plan. You need to have a battle plan. And where the nation of Israel fought literal wars, that's not what we're concerned with as a Christian. We're concerned with spiritual warfare, Ephesians chapter 6. But the principles are the same. And Joab was a great general. And I've learned a lot over the years about how to deal with young men and young ladies, the Timothys of my ministry, uh, and, and, and by, by things that uh, some of the great generals did in the Bible. And here's a case where uh, uh, not only do you have a great story, but I find my life verse for ministry. And I have different ministry, uh, verses that really have set my course in life and I could just about take every subject and give you a verse, but for me and for ministry personally, this is my verse. This is my verse right here. And this verse has served me well over the years, and uh, I've had to call on it many, many times, and it's a good verse. Uh, but Joab's in a battle. This would be 2 Samuel chapter 10. Joab's in a battle, and he's in a battle against the Syrians. And uh, he calls his second-in-command, uh, Abishiah, and he gets him over there and he says, look, we're in a hot conflict here. We're in a hot LZ. We got, some, we, got them coming, we got the zips coming over the wire, man. We got some problems. So here's what we're going to do. He says, I'm going to take all the choice men. And I'm going to put them right at the front of the battle. You take the other half and you stay in reserve. And uh, he says, but I'm going to take the choice men and I'm going to put them in the forefront. Now, the first principle I get out of that is you've heard me say it many, many times. And I learned it from my own spiritual father. It is the fact that God never sends green troops into combat. He never does. He said to take the choice men, put them in the heat front, front of the battle. The ones that aren't ready for it yet, keep in the rear with the gear, so to speak. Don't let them get into there till they get ready. And that's a great battle plan. Because uh, most young men and young ladies are not, are not ready to handle the heat that comes into it uh, because they don't have the experience of it. 
So it's good to get a little experience in life and ministry, see what goes on, glean from somebody who's been there and done it. And uh, once you get to that point in your life, then, uh, you know, then you too can be put in the forefront of the battle. But the verse that he gives him here is a great verse in verse 12. And he gives this to Abishai as they're getting ready to depart because he knows that probably in time he's going to have to call up the reserves. Just like I know in time, some of you here this morning, that maybe you're not ready to get into the heat of the battle yet, but you're in the reserve, so to speak. But in time, you ought to get up to the point where I can put you right up in the forefront of that thing and where they're coming over the wire and you can man an M60 with a, with a guy with, holding the ammo for you and you can just cut them in half as they're coming over the wire. That's what you got to get to. And I know most of you don't understand that, but that's okay. But here's the verse. Oh, I love this verse. He says, Joab says to Abishai, be of good courage and let us play the man for our people and for the city of our God. And the Lord do that which seemeth him good. Ah, that's a great verse. That's my life verse in ministry right there. Play the man. Play the man. I got a message I preach out of Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30. I, I think I preached it here uh, probably once, maybe twice. And that message is based on the, the great passage there. And I, I call it when God looks for a man. And in that verse, he says, And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, uh, th that I would not destroy it. But then he goes on and says, But I found none. And, you know, God's always looking for men and women who are going to stand. But the thing, the key to making it stand is having the courage to play the man. Now, when you, when you most young men, again, you know, and I use young men, but to put ladies in the same category in, in the ministry aspect of it, they, they, got the, they got the heat, they got the, they got the energy, but they don't have the wisdom. And uh, there, there's more to warfare than just going out and, uh, and you know, charging. charging. You've got to understand the logistics behind it. And that's the key. And, and many times, you know, uh, you learn to be a man uh, uh, by simply acting like one. When in fact you're absolutely scared to death, and that's a, that's a, that's the aspect of, of of playing the man, playing the man. And I think it's tragic today, and it's pathetic today that in Christianity that we don't have many men who really understand to stand. Oh, you you carry your right Bible and you stand it, but you fall for some temptation just like that. You stand with your Bible, you claim to be saved, <coughs> but you know what? When push comes to shove and the battle's raging, you ain't going to be anywhere around because you always got an excuse, you always got an angle. And there was guys like that in the military. There's guys like that in the military that always wanted to wear the ribbons on their chest and they always wanted to talk about it, but when, when the action was coming, they just weren't anywhere to be found. And it's true in Christianity. I, I love this verse. I, think, I, I love this verse because I think of, of not only what it means to me, understanding it, of playing the man, playing the man, being God's man even when you're scared to death, but knowing it's the right thing to do and playing the man. I, I think of, 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 in church history, a guy by the name of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. And they were two guys that were burned at the stake in Oxford, England, right around 1555, October 16th, if I remember right, 1555. 
And uh, they were being burned at the stake by the Roman Catholic Church. I think it was the Church of England at that point. But they were being burned at the stake uh, because of the heresy. And the heresy they were being burned at the stake for was believing exactly what you believe and taking a stand the way Paul told them to take a stand. And uh, I remember studying this as a young kid uh, when I just got into church history. And uh, uh, Dr. Ruckman makes a reference to it in his church history book. And I remember, and then I got researching it all out. And I don't know these guys, but this is what I mean when I tell you, and I've told you before, even preached a message on it one time. This is what I mean when that I was born in the wrong time. These are the kind of guys I like to be around right here. I mean, I know we got some great men in this church, and I love you to death, and you'd stand to fight, and I appreciate that, and we do. We have more than our share. But I want to tell you over, on the overall realm of Christianity, I'll tell you what, I had never seen such an amalgamated and godless mess in all my life of, of people who who are bad imitations of what God's man should be. Incredible. And they're taking these two guys out there, you know, and they burned them a stake side by side. And they tied their hands behind them and put them on a pole, you know, and put all the wood underneath of them there. And they began to light that fire. And, uh, and, uh, and, and, and Latimer was an older man, and Ridley was the younger guy. Now, I don't know exactly how old they were, but they were, uh, Latimer was the uh, older guy, and, and Ridley was the younger guy. And as the fire began to come up and consume them, young Ridley began to, he began to panic a little bit. Not that you probably wouldn't, but uh, he began to kind of lose his grip. And old Latimer looked over at him as the flames began to come up and he was heard to yell over the flames, Master Ridley, play the man. Play the man. For this day we shall light such a candle in England that the whole world will not be able to be put out. That's my kind of guy right there. That's my kind of guy. And my advice to you, uh, when the Bible says that, uh, come down through there and it says the, uh, that to quit you like men, my advice to you is to play the man. Be the man that God wants you to be. Be the man. Now, the fourth one is really important. And uh, this is another one. And it's, 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 uh, he says to be strong. And Joshua chapter 1 verse 9 uh, says, be strong and of a good courage. And then if you come down through Joshua chapter 1 there, you're going to find in verse 6, verse 7, verse 9, and verse 8, four times he tells them to be strong and have courage. And being strong and courage are two different things, but you're going to find in the Bible they always go hand in hand, always go hand in hand. You see, courage, courage is knowing what to do and the ability to make the right choice. That's courage. Courage is to know what's right, be able to make the, make the call and to do what's right because you know it needs to be done. That's courage. But you see, that's not strength. That's courage. Strength is the ability that after you make the decision, you live with it when all hell breaks loose and you've got to pay the price for it. That's strength. See? Very courageous, the statements you made, Pastor. Yeah, but when your phones start ringing off this afternoon and people say they start leaving the church and everybody gets mad at you, that's where you've got to have the strength. If it's right, it's right. And that's, that's what's missing today. You got people with courage, but they have no strength. You have some people with strength, but they have no courage. Most of God's people don't have either one of them. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, he says, Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Nehemiah told the Jews back there in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, For the joy of the Lord is your strength. And that's a great key. That's a great key. That's a great key. 
<coughs> most people that get into ministry, they got the courage, you know. <coughs> I mean, it's one thing to get up and make a big stand, you know, that's courage, that's good. But along with ministry comes the enduring process of counting the cost, and that's where you got to be strong. It's easy to stand up when, <coughs> when you're in a church, you know, and uh, everybody's there and believes it. The real problem comes in is when your own family attacks you, when your friends attack you, when people that you thought were your friends now are no longer your friends, all because of the fact that you made a biblical stand that was right. You're holding the line, but along with that comes the strength of enduring it. That's the key. And that all comes back to the joy of the Lord. I, I can't tell you, I can't tell you, explain to you, there's no way I could probably do this. But the thing that will get you through when nothing else will get you through, and the thing that will help you endure everything and give you the strength to get through after you made the decision, the thing that will get you through, the only thing it will be, will be the joy in your heart knowing that you made the right choice, that it was the biblical choice. Now, the reason he says all this, and we're going to see this when we get into the book of 2 Corinthians, is because you're going to see in 2 Corinthians that the key to ministry is going to be your suffering. And this is what God's people don't like today. And this is why God's people, for the most part, don't make very good ministers. They talk a lot about it, but it right comes down to the suffering of it, they're just not ready to do it. And, uh, you know, that's why I'm saying, I, I look at, I don't say much, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I, walk, I look at most of God's people today, walk around with, with my finger in the back of my throat. They just want to make you throw up. Because God's people have no courage, they have no strength, they, they talk a great fight, but when push comes to shove, they ain't nowhere to be found. And the bottom line for that is, and I understand it, but the bottom line of that is that they don't want any suffering in their life. They don't want any suffering in their life. And I'm telling you, the thing that's going to make you the minister that God wants you to be is enduring through the sufferings and the troubles that you go through, that you go through that so you can help somebody else. I watch some of you in your struggles. I watch some of you struggle with problems in your life. I watch some of you struggle with marriages, your marriage. I watch some of you struggle with your family, your friends. I watch some of you struggle with your job situation. And you just, maybe you're just too young for you at this point. I don't know. Some of you, I would think, you would have had it figured out by now. But, you know, many of God's people, they go through this, and they never see what they're going through, and the struggles they're going through is exactly what God wants them to go through so they can endure through that because it's your suffering that you go through and the things that you do, even when you do dumb things. In this particular case, it isn't about just suffering for, for the right things. If you can make some of the most goofiest, stupidest mistakes in your life that you will ever make any place, anytime, anywhere, and yet if you want to and turn the thing around, God will take the mess that you got yourself into and he'll bring you through it that down the line you can help somebody else. But the price you got to pay to do that could be a tough price. You know what gets you through? The joy of knowing you're doing what's right. You know what some of you, the biggest problem is? You care too much what people think about you. That's some of your biggest problems out there. You care more about what your friends think about you than you do what God thinks about you. And that's a bad situation to find yourself in. You know what will happen every time you get in that position? You'll never have any joy for the Lord. You know why? Somebody will keep taking it from you. 
Because joy only comes from getting strength, and strength comes from your suffering. And when you're not willing to suffer, and you're not willing to put yourself into that mode and that you can help somebody else, you ain't going anywhere. You ain't going anywhere at all. And there'll be no joy in your life. Joy in your life is the fact that whatever you're going through, no matter how bad it is, no matter how terrible it may be, whether you caused it because you're an idiot or you happen to fall into it because you're doing what's right. When you get to that point in your life and you know that you made it right with God and you're coming back and you're going to do it, the joy that gets you through the suffering is the fact that no matter what anybody else thinks about you, you know you're doing what God wants you to do. And the tragedy is in most of God's people's life, that's not enough for you today. And I feel sorry for you. That's why you'll never make it. Why you'll never get anywhere. One, you're not willing to suffer. Two, when you get into it to suffer, uh, it's a thing where, you know, you're just not willing to pay that price. You see, it was all right for him to suffer for you on the cross, but you're not willing to suffer for him on on this cross. You're to bear his cross. You're not willing to do it. And every time you get a, you, something, something happens in your life that you're happy, you've got somebody in your world, whether it's your family, whether it's your friends, whether it's your wife, whether it's your husband, whether it's your boyfriend or your girlfriend, every time you start to get into that mode where you do something and you just, you just let somebody else take that joy from you. You know why? You let them steal it from you. You can't steal my joy. You'll never be able to do it. You may be able to steal a lot of things from me, but my joy is one thing you'll never take from me. You know why? Because I don't give a flying flip what you think about me. I don't care what he thinks about me. Well, that doesn't give me the license to be, be an idiot, and I can be when I want to be, but that doesn't give me the license to do it. But it tells me that if you don't understand that it's between you and him and nearly nobody else matters, but I'm glad you're here today. Uh, you know what? I'm glad you're here today. But you know what? In my mind, deep down inside, I know when the push comes to shove and this whole thing goes hell and handbag, there'll be probably be 10 of you here. You know what? I'm okay with that. Why could you say that? Because I'll get more done with that 10 than I would if you all would have stayed because you got no heart in it. See? That's my joy. That's my joy. I love you for being here, and I hope you stay forever, and I hope I'm dead wrong, and everybody here, we all just fight them out together. But I don't really think that's going to happen. I just know human nature. But where do you get the strength you need to get through the issues of life without absolutely folding up like a broken accordion? Where do you get the strength and the endurance to go through your suffering that you may minister to somebody else? It's real simple. It comes from your personal relationship and the joy you got in your heart. Never let anybody take your joy. I've seen people, I've seen people, I've had it in my own life. God will do some great thing, you know, and then you get a phone call from somebody and they want to rag on somebody else or tell you about this stupid thing and then that guy, and it just tries to sap. Just like somebody tries to put a hole in your leg and all that God just did come flowing out. Don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. I think the greatest study that you'll ever take on strength and being strong in the midst of adversity is the book of Psalms going through David and his troubles. I mean, I don't know if you know it or not, but 80 verses, 80 verses in one book all build around and deal with God's strength, giving him strength when he goes through the things that he needs to go with. You see, the key to you having the strength to endure all that you have to endure is your personal relationship, and the key to that is Psalms and the study of David's struggles with life and the things that he went through uh, and God being his strength. His joy was in God, what God was doing in his life. 
So you find verses like Psalms 18.1, I, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. Shall I be saved from mine enemies? There it is. Got that on your three by five card? Can you memorize that one? Psalms 18, verse 30 through 34. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler of them that trust in him. For who is God save the Lord? Who is a rock save our God? Who uh, It is God that girdeth me with strength and maketh my way perfect. He maketh my feet like hind feet. He setteth me upon my high places. He teaches my hands to war so that a bow of steel is broken by my arm. Now there's the verse. Got that one? You got that one down? Or do you just kind of willow up like a little tadpole someplace when the adversity comes? Play the man. Play the man. Psalms 19 verse 14 said, Let the words of my mouth and, and, my, and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. See that thing? The words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. Psalm 27 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation whom I shall fear. The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? There's the joy. What do you got to be afraid of? What do you got to be afraid of anybody on this planet as long as you're doing what God wants you to do? You say, well, you don't know what they'll say about you. They're going to say about it no matter what you do. It doesn't matter. It only matters at the end of the day. God is blessing you and you have the things that God has. They have absolutely nothing. You're too stupid to see that. And you let all the joy that God wants to give you through ministry and, and helping others, and you let what somebody thinks or somebody says suck out of you what God is doing. You're nuts. You've got to be a Jehovah Witness. You probably couldn't even make that cut. Oh, and I know, you know, I know, we, we get so strong and we think we're so tough and we think we're so big. Psalm 33, 16 says, There is no king saved by a multitude of a host, and a mighty man is not delivered by much strength. You'll fall on your face if you trust in yourself. God's strength is everywhere for you and for me. Psalm 93, 1 says, the Lord is clothed with strength. So when you put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the, faith, for the flesh, there's your strength. Psalm 95, 4 says, the strength of, uh, uh, the, strength of the strength of the hills is his also. He's in the hills. Psalm 96, 6 says, the strength uh, and beauty are in his sanctuary. Psalm 105, 4 says, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face evermore. You come through Psalms, you got historically David. He's going through all the tough times and the troubles that he's going through. And the promises that God gives him, God gets David through. You know why? Because he delights himself in the Lord and seeks his face evermore. Israel, doctrinally, Israel's going to go through some great times and tribulation. And that's what doctrinally the book of Psalms is all about. And through their prayer and through their enduring unto the end, they're going to be saved. Inspirationally, it's you and me. You and I will go through our own tribulations, won't we? Some of us self-induced because of our stupidity. Others, it just comes because you're going to do what's right. It's okay. doesn't matter. We all make dumb th choices. We all do dumb things. Nobody can hold that against you. 
The bottom line is you have to come to the place where you realize that part of the Christian life as far as ministry is, is suffering, 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 suffering for him. Now, you don't get that. You don't get it. You've never figured it out like 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 says, And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. There it is. You go through what you go through, you struggle what you go through, and you're to be strong, and you endure. And it's through what you hang on to and all of that that you deal with. God makes you strong. And the last command he gives this church is, again, goes back to uh, the attitude of heart. He says, let all things be done with charity. Now, we studied charity when we came through 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14, the great love chapter, chapter 13. We now know now that uh, you never take the word charity in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and make it love. We now understand why you don't do that. Because we now know that charity is the biblical form of love. It's unconditional. The kind of love that God gave you is unconditional. The kind of love that you give him back is unconditional. And the kind of love that we give to other people is unconditional. And there lies the problem now in most churches. Most pastors love you because they want something from you. I just simply love you because you need it. Just like I need it. You need it unconditionally, just like God gave it to me, like he gave it to you. But God's people have a tough time with that today because we always want something back. That's the mode of Christianity today. Now, you know, we're, we're, we, we ought to take the Christ out of Christianity and just call it entity because there's no Christ in it. The greatest quality that Christ ever had, character quality, is giving. For God so loved the world that he gave he gave to you and me unconditionally. He gave to you and me unconditionally. Before you ever born, he saw you in your hell and died for you on the cross, and me too. He gave that love. God put that love in Christ, but he made it unconditional. There's no bars. Everybody can have it. Anybody can get it. It doesn't know any social barrier, social class, no ethnic group. Anybody on planet Earth can have it if they want it. It's unconditional unconditional and that's the way our love has to be for him for each other because the greatest character quality of God is giving the greatest character quality of, of a child of God should be giving to others taking care of others the greatest character quality of a Bible-based New Testament church is an unconditional giving to others whether it be teaching you the Bible without asking anything back You ought to go through some of the churches, and I've got one great one in mind this morning, that you walk in the door and everything you get costs you something. If you want to be discipled, you've got to pay a price to be discipled. If you want to go to a Bible institute, it costs you about six, $700 to go. If you, want to, if, you want to, if you want to get married in the church, uh, it, it, if, you're, if you're a tithing member of the church, I mean, if you've given to the church and you tithe, if you're not a tithing member, you can't even get married in it. But if you are a tithing member, and they check your tithing record, and if you are a tithing member, then it's going to cost you, what, about $800 to get married in that church. I mean, it's your church. You help build it. And now when you want it, they're going to charge you something. Then they're going to tack on somebody to come in and do the sound. Yell loud. 
Then they're going to charge another $100 for somebody to clean up. You see, everybody wants something, and it's usually around money. So the root of, you know, love of money is the root of all evil. Now, so everything you do, you want to learn the Bible, fine, cost you $25. You want to get, come in and get marital help, you got marital problems, fine, it's $30 an hour. That's exactly how it exists today because everybody wants something back from you. And it's usually around money. It's usually around money. And the bottom line is that's not New Testament Christianity. Now, you ought to give. You ought to support the church. We've talked about it many, many times. That's your responsibility. But if you want to get taught the Bible, you know, I have never understood. And this is what drives me crazy and flips my selector to full auto. Nothing drives me crazy faster than somebody having something that God gave us free and then charging you to get it. I just do not understand that other than the fact that you were demon-possessed and need to burn in the lake of fire for all of eternity. I don't understand that. God gave us the book and the principles, and you think that you have such a control of it that you're now going to give out to somebody else what God gave you and you're going to make charge them for it? Crazy. Crazy. Just absolutely nuts. Now, next week, we're going we're gonna to start the book in the Bible of, of dealing with ministry. And, it's all, and it'll be a great time from where we're at right now. You see, the real key to ministry is doing things, all things, with charity. Because great biblical love or real biblical love, it's uncomprehendable. It works so well in the world that we live in because everybody expects to be taken advantage of. And real biblical love is uncomprehendable. People can't understand why somebody would do this without wanting something back. True biblical love is undefendable. People can get mad at you for doing things because you have an ulterior motive, but it's kind of hard to really get mad at somebody who has no ulterior motive. They're just doing it because they love you. I mean, if you're along out there, if you're a single lady and you got your kids in the car, not, not single lady, but your husband's not with you and you got your kids in the car and you're driving down the road and it's a rainstorm about 9.30 at night and it's dark and you're along the road and you get a flat tire and, you know, about that time, another a person pulls up behind you out there and, and it's a guy and he's got his wife and family in the car and he sees you're out there trying to get the jack out and he just says, no, please, get in the car. I'll take care of it and I'll, 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 I'll take care of it for you. And you know what? What are you going to think when you're, when you're in the car? I mean, when, you, when he gets it all done and you try to give him $5 or $10 or whatever and he says, no, 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 no. I want somebody to do it for my wife. I'm just doing it for that reason. God bless you. Go on your way. What do you think when you're driving away? Do you think, well, that rascal, I'll tell you what, I just think he's a jerk. <laughs> now, you're going to think, man, I wish there were more people in the world just like that. And that's exactly what this new world needs. It needs people just like that. But they ought to be God's people. But God's people, we got this, this hand to help you. And you say, are you one-armed? No, you just can't see him on a hand. It's in your back pocket after your wallet. <laughs> Real Bible-based love is uncomprehendable. It's undefendable, but it's also undeniable. And when you take the time to suffer with someone and go through what they're going through, that's how you minister to them. That's why when it comes to restart, 
I can't tell you how many guys have tried to start churches in the inner city, and they all fell on their face. They all fall on their face because they don't want to do what they got to do. It's like a lot of God's people. They don't want to pay the price, pay the dues to do what they need to do. They just want to go in and everybody jumps in line because, oh, you're here to start a church. Let's just line up. It doesn't work that way. People suffer. People go through tough things. Your job and my job is to identify with their sufferings, go through those sufferings with them, be there for them, earn the right to give them the biblical concept of charity and love and then to help them any way that we can. And that's why if you're going to build a church in the inner city, you're going to have to do it the way we're going to do it. We go down there, unconditional. This church amazes me. On one hand, and I guess this is a good thing, on one hand this church infuriates me so much I can't hardly stand you. But on the other hand, you make me so proud of you, I just, I think you're the greatest people in the world. You know, they don't know what to think of us down there. And that's a good thing. They've already said it to me. They've said it to Jamie. They said it to our ladies when we went down there. They said, you know what? And they're watching us. They're watching us. Because they think right now, because all the groups that they have been with, they have come down there, always want something back. And so they're watching us right now. Uh, they told me that, you know, most groups that come down, they come down through the Christmas season because they're, they're, these, these are their words, not mine, because they want that nice, warm, fuzzy feeling, and then they go back and forget about us the rest of the year. I understand that. Nice, warm, fuzzy feelings is what most of God's people want. Now, I, I, I'm, this, is not a, this, is, this is not a criticism. Maybe it is. Probably is. More than I think about it. It is a criticism. <laughs> I drive through Raytown, all these places, you know what, and watch these churches put on these big extravagant Christmas pageants and get all kinds of thousands of people come in. You know what the underlying reason all it is? They want your money. They, 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 you, know why, you know why? And those places will be packed out. You know why? Because God's people want a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling. You like going in and they'll shuttle you. I'll shuttle you. <laughs> shuttle you up to the door. And you go in and you take off your $6,000 mink coat and, you know, you sit in there and you get, fill the place out and a bunch of little goofy people down there put on a little Christmas pageant and you get a nice warm glow about Jesus. And, uh, you know, you hear a pastor get up and, and talk about uh, and all, and you, and you it's, all, it's, all, it's all a game. You wouldn't, you wouldn't go down in the cold, freezing streets to give anybody a, 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 a tract or give anybody a, a hot dog or give anybody a, cu- a cup of water if your life depended on it. It brings you out of your comfort zone, you see. That's the way God's people are today. You know, last week, uh, and, I, and I love it. I think these things are great. The lady down there, I was, I got to tell you, I was amazed. The lady down there called us, and she said, no pressure, no pressure. I'm just telling you, we've got a kind of an emergency down here. We've got all these families down here and all these things. We're, we're out of baby wipes, and we're out of toothbrushes. I don't know what you can do. No, please, no pressure, no pressure. Jamie called me on the phone, and I said, we got 6,000 toothbrushes over here. I said, we got any baby wipes? We got on and made a few things out there. I came back Thursday night. That was Thursday morning. Thursday night, there must have been 643 cans of, of baby wipes out there. See? We took those down the next morning. They went out of their mind. Nobody's ever done that before. You know what? That's, that's charity. 
That's not coming down and saying, well, we're going to do this, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, we got an ulterior motive. We have an ulterior motive. You say you want to start a church. That's not an ulterior motive. And I'm not starting a church. I'm never going to say to them, can we start a church? I'm going to wait for them to say, will you come down and start a church? So stick that ulterior motive in your pipe and smoke it. See, that's the difference between somebody who tries to manipulate the circumstances and somebody who just believes that God's in charge, and if he wants it down there, then he'll do it. I wasn't looking for this place when I found it. I just go through doors. But the only way to get through doors is charity. Unconditional giving. Getting out of your comfort zone and going out there where people are, and, uh, and I know that not everybody can do it, and I'm not saying you should, and I don't look down on anybody that don't. I, I really don't. I don't even think that way. But I'm telling you, they, they, they told us last week, you know, that uh, at Christmas time, everybody, uh, everybody uh, comes down and adopts the families. But they got like 20-some singles down there. Nobody wanted to adopt the singles for Christmas. I said, we'll adopt them. Done. Send me a list of the names. And then I get my little in. I said, I'll take that to our prayer groups, and our prayer groups will adopt those 19 people out just like that. You give me the list of what they want. And we'll take care of it. And then she says, well, uh, could you come down and do a Christmas party? No, we can't. No, no, we can't do that. How about if we just drove by and threw them out in the front? Would that work for you? Christmas party? Yeah, we'll do a Christmas party. You got a Santa Claus suit? Yeah, got nine of them. I don't have any, but I'll get one. <laughs> so now they want us to come down and do a Christmas party, bring all the people in there. We're going to adopt those 19 people plus the kids. Then I said to her, how about all those overnight guys over there? I said, anybody doing this? She says, oh, nobody knows, doesn't. I said, I'll tell you what. I said, here's the deal. I said, we'll take that date. I think we got it on the sign-up sheet back there. We'll take that date. That's a Sunday night. We'll take that date. We'll come down, bake cookies, bring all the parties down. And then I said, we'll get some presents for the overnight guys. And while people are still doing their thing, we'll send Santa Claus over with some of our men to visit with those guys over there, spend the evening with them, take them some treats, take them some presents. Then we'll come back over and do the presents over here. No strings attached. It won't be long that the time that, uh, that uh, somebody's going to say, hey, we even had one lady last week, she says, I want a Bible. She says, can you get me a Bible? She says, but I want a King James Bible. We got a Bible going down today. It's, it's coming that way, guys. You want to start a church in the inner city? Earn the right to do it. Go down and suffer with them. Sit down with those guys over there that sleep out in the cold and, and put your arm around them and talk to them. Spend some time with them. Don't look like they got the plague and say, here's your present. God bless you. <laughs> Don't just surround yourself with all the nice, warm things. Get out of your comfort zone. Get down where the real world is. Don't make God have to take everything out of your life and take it away for you to put you down there before you figure it out. See, that's the key. When we get into 2 Corinthians, we're going to see that the key to ministry is suffering. See? It's you and me identifying with the people that we're working with and the things that you have went through. I watch you people do it all the time. You're working with a couple, you're working with this, and you're drawing off your horrendous past with all the struggles that you had, and now you're telling them what God has done for you. That's invaluable. It's always more important not to tell somebody what God will do for them, but you tell that person what God has done for you and then bring it into their world. That's what I'm talking about. Now, if you guys are smart on the prayer group things, I don't, and you're pretty smart, 
You guys are smart on the prayer group thing. You'll adopt one of these people, and then you'll go back where you work, and you'll tell your people at work, how would you guys all like to adopt a homeless person for Christmas? And you'll get everything you need. won't have to spend a dime. See? Old Bob Jones, you senior, used to say, if the devil's going your way, ride him. You use, that's, 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 in the Bible, it's called wiser serpents, harmless as doves. Sometimes three serpents to one dove, but nevertheless, you know, use the system against the system. That's what it's for. Real biblical love is uncomprehendable. Real biblical love is undefendable. But real biblical love is undeniable. It's you and me going through the doors that God opens unconditionally giving people back to them what God has done for us. And that's where it's at. That's what it'll be. And uh, this is where God gave us this. He could have given it to anybody else on the planet. He gave it to us. Every day of my life, I thank God for the door he gave us. But you see, he wouldn't have given us the door if we didn't have the people to get it done. That's what matters. We have everybody almost to a man and a woman in this church will do whatever needs to be done. Some of you can't go down. I got people that, that can't walk. They called me on the phone. I can't walk, can't go anywhere. I can't really get out. But can you bring a chair down there and can I do something sitting down? I said, absolutely. Absolutely. See? That we have people in, in the world out there today that got strong bodies, can do everything they want, and they wouldn't give God five minutes of their time, George. That's what it's all about. See? That's the difference that you make. It's the difference that you make because many of you, you got addicted to it. And there ain't nothing more addictive than going down there and watching God do something in your life. So we're going to get into 2 Corinthians next week. It'll be a good book. You'll be able to now, and I couldn't orchestrate this if I wanted to. You're going to go through play by play, almost verse by verse, chapter by chapter, seeing what that book says unfold into what we're doing right now in all of the different areas of ministry that we have. It'll take you folks It'll take you Timothys, you Apollos, and you Aquila and Priscilla. I don't know why everybody's getting nervous. We ain't going nowhere. <laughs> It'll take, yeah, we are. It'll take all of you guys and take you to the next level that we work better together. Not harder, just smarter. That you learn that everybody here is absolutely invaluable. But you'll also remember that God saved you for a reason, and that reason is to minister. But the only way to minister is through your suffering. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. And I do love you today. Thank you for all you've done for us. Thank you for the great people here today. Lord, I pray that you'll uh, bless all the endeavors today. I thank you for the turkeys that everybody brought in and the clothes that just keep coming in and the bread and the cookies and everybody who just absolutely is doing their part.